0: Hey, folks, if you love true stories about extraordinary life experiences, we think you'll love the Risk podcast.
1: Risk is the show where people tell true stories that they never thought they'd dare to share.
0: Stories too uncensored for public radio.
1: On Risk, nothing's too intimate or too strange.
0: Like the one about the guy who gets kidnapped by a drug cartel.
1: Or the girl who discovered she was living with a cannibal.
0: Oof. Or the woman who learned the person she was sharing kinky fantasies with online was. Her dear old dad.
1: Yuck. You'll hear real people sharing about life experiences so funny.
0: So scary.
1: So mystifying.
0: You won't believe your ears.
1: Find it all at risk-show.com or just search on your podcast app for Risk. That's R-I-S-K exclamation point or risk-show.com.
0: And now for our regularly scheduled fucking awesome episode of our own. Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose
1: McGowan. Right here.
0: Hey, Tyler. Tribe Called Quest. Fred Armisen. Prince Paul. Javier Munoz. Seth Meyers. Tracy
1: Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Hiem, and you're listening to the Talkhouse Podcast.
0: What's up? Hey, I'm Ellie Einhorn. Welcome back to the show. Today, I'm
1: joined here in Brooklyn by. Nick Dawson, Editor-in-Chief of TalkHouse Film. It's nice to be back on the podcast. It's been too long, Nick. It's been too long. My time in Chicago just has to come to an end. uh, (laughs) I'm here to, to get warm.
0: Yes. Stay away from that polar vortex, if at all possible. Nick, we have a very cool show today. John
1: Cryer in conversation with Ben Lee. I love it when friends and creative collaborators talk. This is a really fun conversation. I really enjoyed this. Now, I have to tell you, Nick, I did not realize these guys had collaborated. But they have and it's quite a fascinating little story
0: behind it as well. Before we tell that, should we play perhaps a clip of one of the songs that they worked on together? Definitely. Let's do it. Is your
2: home a big mess? We're well, dragged to this show? Come on, man, confess. Here's my advice to you and to you. What you Friends, take heed of beer is just
1: what you need. Now it should be clear that everything's better, everything's better, everything's better with beer.
0: That was a little ditty composed by Ben, sung by John, called
1: Everything is Better with Beer. From Bee is for Beer, the musical, which is based on the book by Tom Robbins and co written by Tom Robbins, the legendary novelist, with Ben Lee. I mean, that's pretty awesome if you can go find one of your favorite writers, collaborate with them on a musical version of one of their lesser-known books, which you love, and bring all your awesome friends in to do it, which included Busy Phillips, Belinda Carlisle, Paul F. Tompkins, and, of course, John Cryer, who's, who is a beer vendor and who also was roped in to direct the show. And as Ben says, you can go find it on Spotify. Nick, I'm hoping the show comes to Broadway, man. I'm in for sure. At least... Off-Broadway or (laughs) off-off-Broadway. For it to be off-off-off-Broadway would be an insult. Just a real insult. (laughs) John Cryer is,
0: of course, best known for, I would say, Nick, and you're the expert here, one of two roles. Mm -hmm. Either Ducky. Yes, in Pretty in Pink.
1: Or Alan Harper from Two and a Half Men. I want to give a shout out to the other project that he did with Charlie Sheen, Hot Shots, which is I think, an underrated comedy classic. Hot Shots Part Deux is also pretty excellent. Now, Ben Lee is a returning guest to the podcast, Nick. He certainly is. We had him on before with his musical collaborator, Josh Radner, and they had a, a really excellent chat with Rain Wilson, their mutual friend. Funny guys. Very, very funny and fun conversation. I'm starting to think Ben Lee knows everyone in Hollywood. He kind of does. He kind of <laughs> does. Yeah. I mean there's there is a moment in the in the podcast where he talks about his daughter asking, like when she hears a song or watches a movie, do you know that person? Yeah, yeah. Well, she's definitely being raised in a different way
0: than he was. Ben is originally from Australia. From a very early age,
1: he was a pretty renowned musician over there. Yep, as a teenager. He was a BFD. Can we say that on the air? We can say that. We BFD. can even say big fucking deal. Big fucking deal. Big fucking deal. Magic of podcasts. Wash your mouth out. <laughs>
0: Right. He had the band Noise Addict. He then went on to focus on his solo career when the band broke up. He's released 11 solo albums since. And most recently, he scored Lena Dunham's new show, Camping, which Ben's wife, Ione Skye, see, he even knows Ione Skye. He must know her. They're married. And she acts in the show as well. She does indeed. Nick, I thought it was really fascinating to hear Ben and John talk about having some pretty serious fame as a teenager
1: and then transitioning to being a grounded adult. Exactly, that that thing of, of not really knowing who you are when people have decided who they think you are because you're really famous and then becoming who you want to be. Within that context, they
0: talk about the setbacks and failures inherent in show business. Oh boy, there's so many.
1: And uh, they've got stories. They've
0: got stories,
1: man. We also hear them talking about jumping off the cliff. Creatively speaking, of course. We're not, speaking. we're not endorsing any... Uh, Reckless behavior and, you know, Acapulco or any other sort of seaside resorts. Butlins. Butlins. <laughs> for our British listeners, just for you. It was cool to hear them talk about how a
0: generation of songwriters creatively jumped off the cliff after Duncan Sheik's Spring Awakening. That sort of led directly to uh, the aforementioned
1: Be is for Beer. Apparently, that show made musicals feel doable for a lot of musicians who were not in the sort of Stephen Sondheim, Rogers and Hammerstein kind of uh, my name ends with EIN mold. <laughs> well,
0: speaking of EIN and, and my name having an EIN in it, mm-hmm. we hear about Ben's
1: formative role in Uncle Moshe and His Mitzvah Men. Definitely a classic. And uh, um, how Ben copes with getting given all those demos when he goes on tour? John
0: tells us about his experiences on Superman 4 and Altman's OC and Stiggs.
1: Two classics that are maybe classics for the wrong reasons. And Ben demystifies what looping in my manager actually means. (laughs) I
3: I have heard that from time to time. Spoiler. Uh, Spoiler. Not a great thing. Not a great thing. Should we roll the tape? Let's roll the tape. The reason I was excited to... I always love talking to you. In, oh, as, as, thanks, friend, and you. And, <laughs> and, and um, there's so much I admire about the way you've navigated being a human being in this funny industry, uh, the business of show. Oh, well, thank you. That uh, yeah. is
2: reciprocated. I feel the same way. Uh, unfortunately, folks, this is going to be a love fest. We're not going to, there's not going to be, <laughs> we're not going to be fighting uh, through the course of this. We should introduce something to have conflict over at some point. Okay, let's uh, so let, so let, do in the sec, second act. Okay, so that the sparks fly and then you're worried about our friendship. Exactly. <laughs> and then in the third act, we'll figure out a way uh, to bring it all together. But thank you. That is very kind of you to say. Uh, but I feel very similarly about your artistic journey. I, and I don't want to, you know, sound, you know, full of it, but. Uh, but using the
3: of, word journey will pretty much ensure you do. Yes, I, I, exactly. <laughs> I have a mission
2: accomplished. <laughs> um, but no, but uh, 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 like, because B is for Beer, for, for the uninitiated, was a book that Tom Robbins wrote that was a very odd sort of hybrid of a children's story, but for grownups. But it wasn't like snarky like uh, Avenue Q or something like that that used the style of, of a children's motif to just make, you know, some very, very clever and wonderful and hilarious Jokes, but be as for beer was actually much more sort of um, sincerely spiritual. It was it was on a journey of, of of discovery, and it's a book of Tom Robbins that a lot of people aren't familiar with. Even fans of Tom Robbins don't know about that.
3: Book. Yeah, I I wasn't familiar with it till I found it. Yeah, yeah. It was just not a book that you think of when you think of Tom's canon of work.
2: Yes, no. and it's one of his more recent things. Yeah. It's not in his in his gen- general style, mm-hmm. if he can be said to have a style. Yeah, I guess he has a style that's like uniquely his. But but it's a lovely, interesting, odd piece, and that Ben had. Been spending years writing music on this, uh, and I'm sorry, I'm speaking about you in the third person at this moment because there are listeners. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it's a remarkable commitment to a a piece of work that, first of all, is it was a new thing for you to do because um, it's basically musical theater, which, to my knowledge, you had not part partook not at all. partaken not at in all. It at all. No, okay, um, and to do it with such an, a, a quirky project. I mean, of course, when you read it and you do it, you go, oh, of course, Ben should write music for this. But I was wondering, so you told me once about how you came upon it, mm-hmm. but how did you get that, um, that connection with it that you said, okay, this is something I'm going to be spending a lot of time in my life mm-hmm. bringing to life?
3: Well, it's funny because to understand why this project ever happened, it's, this is like some sort of a industry kind of stuff, but there was a shift that happened in musical theatre right around Spring Awakening where there was clearly a generational shift happening with both composers and writers and audience members that were going to see musicals. And the sense I was getting from my agents was, hey, if you're a singer-songwriter that writes lyrical music with good melodies, there's actually an opening here. And so it was very interesting. Like, I remember, like, um, uh, the head of um, musical theatre department at what was then William Morris. uh, I think there was a bit of a mandate to engage their lyrical singer-songwriters who were interested in exploring the field. So it's kind of interesting. Well, it makes sense
2: because also Tim Minchin had success with Matilda and and, and Spring Awakening, uh, that was Duncan Sheik.
3: Yes, exactly. It was funny because that musical was obviously – Incredible and really done with a very high level of artistry, but also for songwriters like myself, and I remember talking to Amy Mann about it, it also felt doable. Like there was something about seeing one of our peers work in that field and connect on that level that suddenly made it, because before, if you just think of like, I'm never going to be Stephen Sondheim. Like mm-hmm. there, was, there was a degree of like maybe um, an intricacy or like just someone who had been, steeped in musical theatre that it felt like that's who that world belonged to. Mm -hmm. And the shift that happened was it was sort of like, yeah, the door was sort of open in a way. So I remember my antenna was kind of up. Like a lot of the way I think about careers is that like you can't control anything very very much, (laughs) but you can be open to certain eventualities or possibilities. And if you, once something comes into your sort of into your horizon and you sense it as a possibility, it increases the likelihood of interacting with certain sort of um, specifics or certain moments that will bring that into reality?
2: The way that I've experienced the industry is really unusual. You know, I I, I came of age in the 80s when there was this nice bubble of demand for actors just like me. Um, and so I got lucky and I made, I, I, you know, I, I was actually able to make a living doing this way earlier than a lot of people get to. Uh, and I've, you know, th- through luck and happen, you know, happening to have the right skill set that was necessary for various projects. I've had some that really worked. I've also done a lot of things that didn't. <laughs> a lot of things that I went into as an artist with an open mind, an open heart, that did not achieve their artistic goals. That uh, that you know went awry terribly. But those um, those experiences were also incredibly valuable. I mean, I mean, that was part of the reason I wrote the book. Um, I wrote a book called uh, so that happened which was about all the stuff that goes wrong uh, you know and and show business is perfect for that because so much um, goes wrong but but again if you if you take those experiences and and build on them then they didn't go wrong then right <laughs> you know if you learn something from them
3: but so do you really feel that your initial success like getting your foot in the door basically mm-hmm. was do you really feel like that was that much luck?
2: Uh I do. Okay. I do. I, I uh it, I didn't at the time. it would be like um,
3: lower your self-esteem to believe uh, yes. <laughs> that. <yeah. laughs>
2: well no uh, yeah. uh, like, like I said, I, I there was that that great uh, teen movie bubble of the eighties. Mm. You know, there was a lot of there was a lot more jobs for young white guys than uh you know and only in retrospect do I go, oh you know what? Probably for somebody who wasn't a young white guy at that time, there weren't, not, there weren't nearly as many jobs. There were not, uh, it's not as easy to break in. Mm-hmm. Um, I also had the advantage of coming from a, a family that was in show business already. So they understood uh, how ridiculous it was. And, and I already had a little bit of an infrastructure. My mom had a, had a manager. Um, who had, by the way, never been a manager before? He was a he was a lighting so designer. Who a decided, yeah, <laughs> he, uh, yeah. He basically uh, uh, he said to her, "Hey, do you you know you want a manager?" And she was like, "Sure." <laughs> you know, it was like the most half hearted business deal ever. But he sent me out on my first auditions. You know, but most people don't have that. They don't so, have. So, were um, you not um,
3: because of that? Do you think did you not find it sort of intoxicating, like the glamour? You know, like for me the show business was so separate from anything I know that even if I met like a soap opera actor from neighbors Uh when I was a kid like (laughs) you'd bump into someone somewhere I would like not be able to talk because it felt like someone coming out of a painting yeah like (laughs) it's so different than the way my daughter's growing up here Mm -hmm.
2: around artists all the time yeah but if
3: she hears a song mm -hmm. she might say do you know this person do you know what I mean? But or like she'll be in yeah. a movie. She might be like, do you know anyone in that movie? Like, no, she needs to meet them. She's just curious. Mm-hmm. It's so different. And it's of a, course,
2: that's the way it should be. Because right. of course, we're all just human beings and we like this yeah. community and we know everybody. Uh, you know, I, I, I meet actors. And it's so funny because I have the same thing where I still to this day where I meet people that I'm I'm starstruck by. Have, still happens all the time. Uh, but of course, I'm in the community. I know these people. I know, you know, and they're they're all just folks. And <laughs> but I guess what I
3: mean is like coming from your mom's experience. Did you did that allow you to keep somewhat more of a level head oh, than yes. someone who came who moved from the Midwest with no idea of what and just that it was all? Do you know what I mean? Oh yes,
2: like that. A- yeah. absolutely. It also allowed me to deal with failure. With you know whatever setbacks, uh, right. uh, failures probably not the best word. but uh, with, with with it it gave me the ability to understand set, setbacks happen all the time. yeah, all the time. They're just a part of the experience. And you know it's hard not to personalize them and say, well, you know, th- this setback happened because I've brought this on myself because I just don't have the talent or I just don't, you know work hard enough or whatever. But being around it my whole life, I just, you know, setbacks just always happen. Nothing happens smoothly. So, you know, that that is, that is a great lesson to really understand. I know it, are, it's mm-hmm.
3: amazing, too, as you become, you know, because we both share that experience, as does my wife, Ione, of having getting recognized in your teens or mm-hmm. young for your creative abilities or charisma or whatever it is. And then having to transition into adulthood uh, away from, you know, being precocious and cute and actually having to, like, form a life. And um, I've found it to be an incredibly clumsy process. (laughs) Yet it's like when you meet someone that has taken that journey, Um, and done it with integrity and actually said, I'm willing to get my hands dirty and become, to go from whether it's from being a like out-of-the-box movie star to being a working actor Mm -hmm. or being a musician that like had a hit early and they said, okay, I'm going to like go out on the road and prove myself and pay my dues. It's amazing to me. I don't know. I once heard this story. I feel like it was, I went to a Jewish school. I feel like it was a Jewish story that, it, there's a, it was like a rabbinical idea that at the end of your life you look back and the problems that you transcended are like mountains you're on the other side of and you think, how did I do that?
0: <laughs> and the
3: mountains you didn't climb look like tiny hills mm-hmm. and you said, why didn't I do that? Oh, um, okay. And it's something I've thought about a lot that if I'd have known when I started – making music and kind of like going for this dream of being a musician, if I'd have known how severely I would have to be humbled in order to become the man I am today who feels confident Mm -hmm. as a working artist, I don't know if I'd have had the guts to do it. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like you hope that it's going to be, you get that beginner's luck if you're lucky Mm -hmm. and you kind of, I think, live in a sort of denial that you're going to be the exception to the rule and it's just going to keep flowing. Yes. <laughs> but that denial is
2: helpful, I think, to some yes. degree. Yes, because you wouldn't it do it a, otherwise. Exactly, exactly. But now, okay, when you were young and, yeah. uh, you know, before you met the, the Neighbors stars, yeah, yeah. so so you grew up in, in a, a small town in a big no, no, city? No, no, Sydney. I mean, oh, Sydney, Sydney, okay. Monday so so, yeah, yeah, so you are yeah. a city kid. Yeah. yeah. Um, and a musician, how, when did that sort of grab you? Well,
3: it's like I, I had a... Music, I used to tape songs off. We had music video shows on Saturday and Sunday mornings on TV mm-hmm. and I used to tape them like with a tape recorder right yes, close to the speaker right and then I would like <laughs> mm-hmm. sing on top of them and do another, record it into another tape recorder and <laughs> that was going on from probably six or seven
1: really? eight years
3: old. And I remember there's one moment that, only in the last couple of years I've realized how important this moment was. There was a musical, like I said, I went to a Jewish school and we did a musical called um, Uncle Moishi and His Mitzvah Men. Oh, sure. And, um, and, <laughs> and they were auditioning. <laughs> they didn't call it auditioning, but they had. Okay. Every, it was second grade. So they had all the kids stand up. And you had to sing "Happy Birthday" everyone, because literally they had no idea who could sing and who couldn't. Sure, that's And a good there was a baseline. few kind of lead yeah. roles, okay. so it, it was funny. I, I sung "Happy Birthday." So second grade. So what was I? Um, maybe eight, seven or eight, right? And I felt good singing the song "Happy Birthday." Like mm-hmm. it, it felt good in my body. Mm-hmm. Like it's a melody, it's a vibration, and it, it felt good. Like I liked the way my voice sounded. And I noted that the teachers wrote something down when I said it. And at that moment, this link was formed. That, that to me, is the moment that I became a performer because it clicked that something that makes me feel good is making other people feel good. And what else is creative performance than that? Oh, yeah, I mean, I had
2: a similar moment when I was at summer camp uh, and it was a theater camp, but I was there not really wholeheartedly buying into being in show business. And I, I had a joke that I had to tell in a show, a show called Earthlings, which is a, a kid's show about ecology. And the joke landed. And that was the moment that I was like, oh, uh, this is the connection I want to have with people. Um, and I still, you know, I love doing dramatic stuff as well, but getting the joke to land will always be that primal connection that always worked for me. So so what made you transition to uh, learning instruments? And was that something that Transitioning were... out
3: of um, Uncle Moishi and his Mitzvah Man. Yes, Getting a exactly. leading what role, your, by the way. What, what was way? your
2: next career step yeah, after yeah, By the, by the way, way, I would like
3: that. I did play Uncle Moishi. And, um, <laughs> I, and right. I sang the song, Ain't Gonna Work on Saturday. That was a big hit. Um, you know, I got into Rock and metal it was like Bon Jovi on the radio uh-huh. and Guns N' Roses and um, uh, and just pop music. I remember listening to. I, I played piano. I did like I call it the mandatory Jewish two years of piano. <laughs> um, I mean, I have music in my family. Like my great uncle was the court violinist for Tsar Nicholas. Seriously, in Russia? Yeah. Wow. And I have okay. another <laughs> uncle. I can show you some photos after. There's actually one on my desk there. Um, he was a gypsy. Violinist um, called Sasha Berliner, and he used to like play in this uh, in Berlin in the twenties, and hung out with Einstein. He was like this local, oh. like with, so. So I have this sort of like a European troubadour thing Tradition you know what I mean it's like I only panic. always says like the way I eat it's like I do everything like intensely uh, I do there,
2: everything is there just food scraps all around your it's mouth quick, and-
3: <laughs> it's quick it's effective I do I do everything like I have like a Russian peasant inside me uh-huh. you know what I mean it's like everything I do it's like I'm gonna do it if I'm gonna do a shot of alcohol if I'm gonna do exercise I just mm-hmm. do it you know if uh-huh. I'm gonna write a musical you know um, <laughs> and, and um, so, so it was in the family but it's funny, you know, the way we look back on why we started. I remember I was playing piano and I I read, we had a magazine in Australia. It was like a takeoff of a British magazine called Smash Hits. It was oh, like sure, a, you sure. know, a big pop magazine. And in the back, I probably had one that was three months old. I don't know. I wasn't that keeping yeah. up to date. There was a little <laughs> thing that said, win an electric guitar. Um, Just, you know, write a postcard to Smash Hits magazine. Mm-hmm. And I entered and I was so convinced that I was going to win uh-huh. and that the electric guitar was going to show up on my, t- it was like, it wasn't even, it was so funny. Like I didn't even enter it multiple times.
2: No, You are just like, this is the one. I entered, I was like, oh, <laughs> I want that ticket.
3: so badly <laughs> that I must be the guy who's going to get it. Yeah. <laughs> and I never heard back from Smash Hits, <laughs> but what was awakened in me was that I wanted a guitar. Yeah. And that's the moment where I started playing guitar. I, I was said so, to my parents, yeah, yeah. I was
2: so ready for, that guitar is right here because <laughs> we're <laughs> in this recording all. studio. Um, but no, <laughs> not at all. But see, but it made you, it, sh- it showed you what you wanted.
3: It's a little clue. It was like yeah. a little clue. And I just, I, I was like, I couldn't deny it. And mm-hmm. it was. And it's funny because there might, there would have been something else, I guess, if I hadn't seen that. It was such a like weird arbitrary thing, a competition to win an electric guitar in a magazine. But the desire, I mean, that's part of like, you know, I just finished this job um, scoring camping on HBO which is the show um, my wife's in and I wasn't aware I wanted to do that until Jenny Connor inquired if I'd be interested and I said yes I would and then I didn't hear back from her for a, for a month. <laughs> in that month I realized how badly I wanted to do the gig. Uh-huh. You know? <laughs> and sometimes it's like the awakening of desire is what takes you yeah. on the next that, journey.
2: It's, it's interesting because uh, I have a, a, an 18-year-old son who's currently at college, and the biggest thing that scares me about uh, him, and he's a wonderful kid, um, is that there isn't some driving passion for him. You know, that there, there he hasn't discovered that thing that he really wants. Uh, and because I realize it's such a gift, oh my God, You know, I mean, even even if it ends up being something that you you don't achieve everything that you always wanted to achieve in just just knowing what you want and knowing the direction you want to go in is just this incredible uh, luxury, Uh, you know, because I knew it by the time I was, you know, I was I think I was 12 or 13 or 14 when I had that moment. And I was like, okay, you know, I'm I'm going to have a career in theater wherever that takes me, you know, if that ends up me being a casting director, great. If that, if I'm a performer, great. If I'm a director, great, you know, I, 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 but this is the thing I want to do. So what was the, what was the moment that, okay, you've got your guitar that you, that not the one that you, you did not win <laughs> that one, but you got a new, you got one yourself. Yeah. Um, there must've been a moment when you jumped off the cliff you know, when they're, when you're like, well, uh, you know, being a musician is going to be my life.
3: You know what? It was sort of quite significantly later because, because I did music concurrently with high school. I was able to maintain the illusion to myself even and to my family that I was sort of a normal kid. Like I didn't have to make a commitment um, the way you do later in life mm-hmm. when there's like you have to pay the rent. And exactly, you have to do it. yeah. You, so...
2: Me too. Yeah. Of think of I was auditioning like crazy. And so you kind
3: school. of are like hedging yeah. your bets a little, you know, and even just in terms of that emotional commitment of going, I am a whatever you are, you don't have to do it. And I remember for me when I was um, 18 or 19, my friends were all going to university from high school. And I honestly, I'd already, I started at 14. I'd already made albums, toured. Like I had a thing going, you know, and i was still under the illusion that i was going to go to university with all my friends and do music the way i'd done it through school like mm-hmm. in summer breaks and in, and i remember the timing was not working out with making the record I, I wanted to make this album that became this record breathing tornadoes right before i went started university in australia and it just didn't work the timing and i was having a huge amount of anxiety about it because it was interrupting the idea that I'd have to make a choice totally interrupted in the illusion that I could do everything. And I remember I, I called my mom and I was like, cause a lot of it's about family yeah. and the, what you, and I called my mom and I said, I, it's not working out. They want me to make the album when everyone's going to uni. And she said, you know what? You can go to university anytime, make the album. And We can all look back and say there's a lot of problems in our families, you know, there's a lot of like we all, I think every single person was parented in a subpar way, one way or another. But that moment, the permission my mom gave me to not have guilt about making a proper choice Mm -hmm. at 18, I'm grateful for to this day. Wow! Well,
2: yeah, that is that's very cool. And your mom wasn't uh, involved in show business. No, in no, any no. Respect. I, my family,
3: no. not, at all, not uh-huh. at all. But what what was that moment for you?
2: Oh, for me, uh, it, it was super easy choice for me because uh, you make a money. Uh, yeah. Well, well, yeah. No, because <laughs> yeah. when I was eighteen. I applied to two colleges. I was not particularly. Um, my grades were uh were were so so. I was going to a science school, Bronx High School of Science, in, in New York City, which is a great school for people into computer science or you know mm-hmm. there's Nobel Prize winners and physicists and you know amazing school for people who are interested in that. I was not. Um, so I was lucky enough to get into NYU and Boston University. But I started auditioning in my last year of high school for stuff and I got lucky. I got offered uh, a Broadway show as an understudy. And it was the kind of thing that I can do one or the other. I can't really go to New York University if I'm doing this, if I'm doing eight shows a week or even have to be on call for eight shows a week. So it was just a matter of, uh, I was launching my life and you know, I was like, NYU isn't going to happen. And NYU was so expensive that my mother was relieved. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and we were so excited about the possibility of me being this understudy in this show. Um, it was Brighton Beach Memoirs, was a wonderful Neil Simon play, and I was understudying Matthew Broderick, who's uh, who was amazing in that show. Uh, I mean, it's a, it's you know, he was the lead and uh, he won a Tony for it, and he's it was a it was an, a, a stunning role from him. But uh, but it was such a coup that that college being off the table was fine. That was really the moment off the cliff.
3: And you but, didn't and have any emotional conflict because your mom was my mom is happy happy for in, you in the business. S- she was yeah. yeah, yeah could yeah, yeah. not
2: be more happy for me yeah. to get this opportunity. Actually, interestingly though, I got fired from that. Um, I worked for about six weeks uh, in rehearsals, and I was not in good enough shape. I didn't I didn't work hard enough. Um, it was a huge part we had a run through for the director when you're a, when you're an understudy you don't actually rehearse with the director you rehearse with the stage manager and you rehearse with all the other understudies and you only do that twice a week so it's not like uh, a normal rehearsal normally if you're rehearsing for a play it's 4 weeks every day wow, you know and that's man. and 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 so after 6 weeks which was really only 12 Rehearsal, and you're doing sessions. a lot on your own, like yeah. trying to learn. That, and I'm yeah. trying to learn a lot on on my own. I mean, the the expectation for uh, understudies is you come to the show every night and you watch the show and you memorize it. Right. You know, and that's that's absolutely logical. You know that that is, you you know, the producers are absolutely right to expect that. Um I, however, was looking at it more as a rehearsal process, and so when we had the run through for the director after six weeks. I had to call for line a couple of times. I and I remember afterwards the director didn't have any notes for me and I was like,
1: "Yeah.
2: <laughs> I just aced just one, Exactly. <laughs> uh and uh and I was uh, and I the next morning I got a call from my manager saying they that uh, that you're done and I <sighs> uh, I and I was that was the uh, a real sort of jumping off the cliff moment for me <laughs> because it was suicidal. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, but no what happened was I had thankfully the day I auditioned for Brighton Beach Memoirs, I also auditioned for a touring company of Torch Song Trilogy. And I got offered both of them in the same day. And I took Brighton Beach Memoirs because it was in New York and it was a much bigger part and it was, you know, incredibly exciting. And when I got fired from Brighton Beach, the Torch Song people said, hey, we we actually need somebody to take over in the New York production. Um, Would you be willing to consider it? And I said, yes. So I had... um, uh, so even though I was just in the depths of despair about getting fired, very soon after that, I got offered another job. Hmm. Um, so that, um, and then I was just off and running, you know, I I was hopping from job to job. And as I said, there was a bubble of, of, of demand for young actors like me at that time. And so I, I just got in this groove of just getting a lot of things. Uh, I, and I got to work with Robert Altman. I did, my first wow. movie was actually with Robert Altman. And again, a, a misfire of a movie. Uh, uh, and he had those, you know, he had Health you know, and Quintet and, you know, all these movies that uh, were bizarre, but very noble failures on his part. But mine was so awful that it never even got released. <laughs> you know, it was, it was his, was it, really? it was wow. called Ocean Stiggs. It was a National Lampoon movie and it was supposed to be his take on a teenage, a teen comedy. Wow. Uh, and it was just, you know, we were all improving uh, around the basic structure of a script and it just didn't work. Did you see it? I did. I did. Well, it was taken away from Bob. It was re-edited by the studio. So it's, it's difficult to tell whether, you know, perhaps his version would have worked. I don't know. Um, But to my, to my knowledge, his cut does not exist anymore, anywhere. But the studio took it away and uh, cut it. And I have, I saw the final studio version uh, and it just didn't Hmm. work. Uh, you know, it was just, it should have been much funnier. It always came from a kind of mean-spirited place. And that was kind of the fun of it. It was these Mm. two very rebellious teenagers in the middle of this stultifying suburbia. So that, it it came from a dark place. um, But that tonally is really hard, is really, really hard. And we just didn't, didn't hit it right.
3: It's also like another time when so much like like something wouldn't come out at all. Like nowadays, there's so many platforms that even if something yeah. sucks- it, It'll you can, find its way it's out a few somewhere. It's yeah. <laughs> got you know, Netflix will buy it for a dollar. Yeah. But, um, but, but No, this was
2: a big studio yeah, movie yeah. That, that they just buried. Wow. They did not want. But my point being that I could fail. When I saw myself, I thought, oh, I made some really big choices in this that I think don't work on film. And, and that's been something that I've done in a few projects where I, I decided, you know what, I'm gonna go in a direction with this character. And if the director is on board with me, then, you know, we have a great time. And mm-hmm. sometimes that works. Um, Pretty and Pink worked great. You know, made a lot of big choices in that. That did not work great. Superman 4, uh, not so great, <laughs> you know. Uh, so, you know, you get involved with things and hopefully bring some positive energy to it and your creativity. and sometimes that'll blow up in your face, um, you know, and you just have to live with it.
3: Totally. What, what Something I wanted to ask you about was you've just got a, a great new job. Oh, yes. It? Yes. yes. The, what
2: the, uh, the super... The su- well, super, yes. Super, Supergirl, Supergirl asked me to be yeah. their Lex Luthor, which sort of makes you Lex Luthor in... All the Berlanti shows, which, you know, Arrow and The Flash. Oh, and, really? Yeah. So you have
3: to do it. Well, no, have... I don't. I don't oh, oh. know
2: if I have to. I'm only, I'm only it's doing possible. Supergirl for three, uh, oh, yeah. three episodes, oh. and and so I don't want to assume. But that being said, one thing I love about Supergirl as a show is they've had a lot of fun with bringing in stuff from the the connection that I had to Superman, which was the Superman movie, yeah. which was the Chris Reeve uh, version, the first one. And, and Superman 4 was a heartbreaking experience for me because I went into it as a comic book kid, loving being a part of a big comic book movie and being up there with Chris Reeve, who, I you know, when I was 14 and I, or 13 when I saw um, Superman the first time and it just transported me and was just, you know, one of those amazing cinematic experiences for a kid. And... That I could be a part of that just meant so much to me. Mm. And when uh, the movie was a mess, it, you know, they ran out of money and. They had to cut huge chunks out of it because they couldn't finish the special effects in them, and uh, and the movie doesn't even really make sense. And it's one of those movies that's so bad that they they did a "How did this get made?" about it. And, and for people who are interested, and,
3: you you did an in depth interview, which yes. is a special episode <laughs> of "How did this get made?" about yes. your exp- that people can listen. It, I lo- I mean, I was so interested hearing. Well, that. it was
2: it taught me a lot about the about the business. I, I got to work with some people I revered, yeah, and but also see how something that with even incredibly talented people can really not. Gel, and to see that my own like to this day, I you know there are people who who like that the character I played in that, but I watch it and I go ah you know what I made some choices that were kind of easy jokey choices that I shouldn't have done. You
3: watch it regularly? Yes,
2: I I basically (laughs) I run it pretty much uh, every night uh, just to lower my self esteem before I go to sleep. Uh, No, I just just I feel like you know there's going to be a way I can honor this legacy and that I'm getting another chance to do it is is pretty so, but, thrilling.
3: But so the thing I'm so the one of the things that I admire about you is you are very you love to work. I do. And I do. The life of an actor, even someone who's like been on hugely successful shows and hugely successful movies, you go through periods of essentially being unemployed. Yes. and that's why I was so happy you got that because like, <laughs> no, I <laughs> know been you love for a while. No, I know you love to work and I I've, do. I've seen you in between jobs a couple times, and it's like I just wondered sort of what, because this is intimately connected to this theme of how to sustain yourself in the long game is what tools you've built up. To get you through those periods that don't involve totally losing faith that you're ever going to work again, and,
2: and that you have any relevance artistically to, to yeah. anybody. Yeah, yeah, it's a, a, a certain amount of denial helps. <laughs> uh, I'm serious; it, it does because you can absolutely go down the rabbit hole of there is actually no logical reason that this last thing I did might be the very last thing I've ever I ever get to do. Uh, you know, there, there's no. I can't point to a reason that that's definitely not true. Yeah. Um, so you can go down that rabbit hole. Thankfully, I don't. I don't do that often. Uh, but uh, um, but also for me, what I always did was uh, I did, and I'm going to use finger quotes, favors for people, which is, you know, in, in New York, it was always play readings. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, playwrights know you and know that you're, you're, you can say a line of dialogue without falling over yourself. So they, they need actors to help them. Student filmmakers need actors. I, I, when I went to film school at USC and none of the other students knew how to cast their shows because they just were like, well, how on earth am I going to meet actors? I mean, I'm in Southern California. Where could I possibly meet? I right. mean, actors, it's like, oh, my God, throw a rock, you guys. Totally. You know. It, but it was fascinating to me that they didn't realize that actors were everywhere. So for me, um, and, and as I said, you know, when people would ask me for favors, it's always a little bit of a favor to me that they ask me because I love participating in these things. I always get to learn play. something. Yeah. I get to play. The beers for Beer was, yeah. you know, it was, it was a, a favor. And it was very funny just to tell folks a yeah. little bit of the story. We were, you were over at my house, basically, yeah. and yeah. you brought up that you had written a musical and I was like, oh, well, that's, <laughs> first of all, my mom is a composer and writes musicals. And I know how effing hard that is. And, but you just tossed it off like, oh, I was minding my own business and I wrote a musical. And I said, well, that's, that's great. I just did a, a concert reading of my mom's musical in New York. And he said, oh, what's that? And I described it. And he said, oh, we should do that for mine. And I said, yeah, you should. Great. Have a good time doing that. <laughs> and he said, yeah, you can direct it. And I was like, I, Yes, I can. <laughs> and which uh, well, well, I've never directed. But, but a to backtrack,
3: before. the 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 reason I asked you to was I I said to you, you said, "What are you going to do?" And I said, oh, no, I was I sort of thinking maybe a Largo workshop, and you said, "That's a great idea." And the fact that you resonated with that, and for people who don't who live outside LA and don't know what Largo is, you know, it's it's a it's a playhouse.
2: Yes, for, <laughs> that's for, a very good term for works in that.
3: progress, whether it's comedy, music. I mean the. It's an incredible community, also. And the fact that you resonated with that being the correct next move and the place to explore it was like. But, but you know what's interesting to me about you saying yes, and everyone we dealt with? We had amazing people Padgett Brewster and Laura Silverman and Stephen Weber in that workshop. And um, that was there's been a lesson I've been receiving through my uh, adventures in show business, which is that when you ask someone to be part of something fun like that, there's two types of people. There's the people who give you a straight yes or no. And there's the people who say Shh, looping in my manager. <laughs> and those people are never going to do it.
2: Uh-huh. So yeah. You're and agreeing.
3: they're, but they're not, people that ultimately want to play. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's what I see in like, whether it's the Largo community or UCB or, you know, these various like creative communities around is that I like to be part of the people who are up to play, which is I think what you do too. And like, you know, when you see you popping up in whether you were in Maria Bamford's thing, although these little things, it's my senses that Maria probably texted you and was like, hey, John, would you do this thing? I don't know, maybe it came through official channels. Uh, No, actually, it was one
2: of the writers on the show who who had worked on a show with me and said, hey, we're looking for a fun But
3: that's 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 an approach to being part of this industry and this community that not everyone shares. And it's not that there's a right or wrong. They're just different styles. But there are certain people that you can reach out to and they're not interested in having buffers from the creative experience and the intimacy of being part of a community. And I've started like watching for that really early those signs of people wanting to prematurely involve their representation (laughs) because I go okay I'm not going to waste my time (laughs) (laughs) yeah Um,
2: because well that that was an interesting lesson for me because I even though I grew up in show business I still had the same image of agents as you know people who beat the bushes and look for a gig and you know it's and they'll you know you know knock on a producer's door and say hey you know there's this kid who's great. And that is not what they do, uh, at least not in my experience. Uh, and, I, and I've had agents who I genuinely like and have a real rapport with, um, but generally they, uh, you know, it's like uh, in Tootsie when uh, Sydney Pollack says, I'm here to field offers, <laughs> which means if people come to you with an opportunity, they're the ones who advise you and, and help you make a contract. And, you know, and they're not the ones finding the opportunities for you. Uh, and in, in Los Angeles, at least, they're actually actively stopping the opportunities, it's seriously, because they, they consider themselves gatekeepers and that it's their idea to keep projects that they do not consider the next good step for you from you. Hmm. So I, I do suggest that for most people, if you want to approach artists, find a personal way to do so while respecting their boundaries and their space. <laughs> um, but I, I admire hustle. I really do. I mean, if you've ever, you know, a guy jammed a CD in your, uh, I'm sure, in a parking lot, that oh, must and I, have happened I to you.
3: always <laughs> listen to at least the first minute.
2: Yes. And, and, but Because you well, have to live your life, it obviously. Sounds, and, no, you know. it sounds
3: small. But mm. when I say at least the first minute is within a minute, I'll know whether it's for me or not. Exactly. You know, and I'll often listen to the whole thing. If it, if it is, I'll 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 listen to it obsessively. Mm-hmm. But now we're past the day of CDs. Um, people more send you their SoundCloud or whatever. Mm-hmm. But when it used to be CDs, I'd come back with from tour with a stack of 10 or 20 <laughs> demos. And I only would be like, I can't believe you're listening. Like, she's like, I've seen other musicians like literally throw them out yeah. the
2: window. <laughs> literally burn them in a bonfire on their lawn.
3: I, I don't want to end on like a... a dark area but but I (laughs) didn't want to have any of your relatives died died recently uh, (laughs) is there any no but I did I did want to touch on because I I've actually been super inspired by your I mean you can only I can only call it activism on Twitter um in the sense that you obviously feel a degree of passion and responsibility to continue to draw attention to what you feel are the shortcomings of the current administration (laughs) (laughs) what are you talking about (laughs) but but, but i'm just curious about um how much of that is simply that you found a channel for your rage (laughs) and how much of it is an attempt to actually utilize platform and influence to affect people and change things and you know
2: for me, I, I did not want to ever be political on social media. I, well, you I, have
3: failed miserably. I failed miserably. I,
2: have failed miserably.
3: <laughs> I really
2: didn't. I, I like being an artist. I love people enjoying my work. I don't. I don't honestly want to know that much personally about the artists that I love that you and I know a lot about each other's lives is, is a horrible thing. Um, <laughs> but no, you, you know, it's like I, the art is the art yeah. and I want to enjoy the art. I don't need to know that this actor is a jerk. You know, it's like uh, I, I still love him. I still love the, the character he did. I don't want to know that this musician is horrible to people. I want to enjoy the music, you know. Um, so I don't want to preach to people. I totally get when they say, shut up, Hollywood, you know, and I, I get it. I'm right there with you. I would love to shut up. Nothing would make me happier. It
3: sounds like a giant butt. But the 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 butt that comes up is
2: I grew up in New York city. Um, for decades, we have been made aware that unfortunately the guy who's occupying the presidency right now uh, is a con man, you know, uh, uh, of, of uh, dubious mental capacity and has been involved in various money laundering issues. And, you know, he was, he was actually fined for it. Uh, the Taj Mahal casino was uh, fined $10 million. And as a person familiar with that information, I felt like, well— Somebody's got to say this. but, but and, and for me, the big change also was I started working on this podcast with these amazing lawyers. They, they, they do a show called Undisclosed, which is where they look into cases of wrongful conviction. Uh, and that's not on brand for me <laughs> at all. Um, but they asked me to host sort of the talk show portion of the program. And it's been an amazing education for me just in terms of, you know, what people are really dealing with uh, in terms of poverty and crime and and how they interact with the government and how the government, you know, through often well-intentioned ideas ends up ma- criminalizing whole swaths of the populace through, uh, you know, as I said, often well-intentioned uh, ideas. And, you know, I see the way the system works and, like, I had this this conversation with my son who who feels like, okay, in America, we don't have laws that are openly racist. And I said, well, <laughs> um, you know, there is a a way for the system to still be racist without having openly racist right. laws. And it and unfortunately you have to look at the at the breadth of the history of the United States and how the racism was just baked into it for so long that just erasing those laws and saying, oh, we have the Civil Rights Act, you know, that's, uh, that's all gone now. It doesn't work that way. It's, it's so baked in that the effects of that are, are you know, ongoing. I mean, people of color in this country have had their economic power decimated for almost the entirety of the, the, the history of this country. And that affects the criminal justice system and that affects uh, health and it affects so many issues that somehow we have to deal with it. So I keep telling my son, listen, it's not your fault. It's really not. You didn't bring this about, but we do have a, a responsibility to try and fix it.
3: That feels like a good place okay, to end, right? Don't you think? Yeah, that's I that's, agree. that's more uplifting yes. than <laughs> the current <laughs> yeah. administration. Um, do you, anything you want to plug or um, drive people towards? Uh, no, I. You know, I'm give I'm your really, address if people want to show up. I don't know.
2: Well, I would love for people to check out uh, Undisclosed. As I said, I just host the the talk show portion of it, and I've been in and out. Where, you know, whenever I'm doing a job, I I can't partake in the show. But I really think what they're doing is incredibly valuable. Uh, It's also just a beautifully made show. I mean, these stories are incredibly compelling, and because it's a podcast, they can go into just incredible depth. Um, They did a a series on the death of Freddie Gray in Baltimore and just brought in the whole history of of law enforcement in in Baltimore and the, the cultural history of it. And all of a sudden, it just slams you like, it's it's amazing this didn't happen sooner, you know. Um, so I, I feel like they're really contributing to the world, and and if people get a chance, I think they should absolutely listen to Undisclosed cool. Podcast.
3: And I will um, suggest you hop on your favourite streaming platform and listen to Beers for Beer, the musical. You can hear uh, John as well as Laura Silverman, Belinda Carlisle, Paul F. Tompkins, Rose Byrne, Kerry Brothers, Alex Weiss, uh, also, I'm just going to keep going. Yes. Uh, also, you should um, listen to Jill Sobule's last record, Nostalgia Kills, that I produced, which I love, and um, watch Camping on HBO. Um, it's eight episodes, really dark, really stressful, really funny. <laughs> and um, that's about it, man. Thanks for doing this. That's fun. You,
2: ben. Thanks for asking, man. Super. See, you asked, and we just did. And that's how we rolled. Yeah. <laughs> All right, thanks. Thanks, man. man.
0: Ben Lee, John Cryer, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Thanks, guys. Listeners, if you enjoyed today's episode, definitely make sure to check out Ben's
1: previous conversation. With Josh Radner and Rainn Wilson, and just, just like dive into the archive generally. There is so much good shit. It's been almost five years now, Almost it? five years. We're going to have to have a
0: big party. Well, Nick, we started a little party over on Spotify. We chose 16 of our favorite episodes from the past. Put those up, and we're now sharing each week's episode on Spotify. It's like a party in your ears. Over on our socials, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, what have you, there are some great pictures from the recording of this episode which happened at Ben's house. Guys just messing around. <laughs> Today's
1: episode is recorded by Ben Lee at his studio and by Mark Yoshizumi at Hook and Face Studios in Brooklyn, and it was co-produced by Mark Yoshizumi. So talented. The Talkhouse
0: podcast theme song was composed and performed by The Range. Nick, what do we have coming up next week? We
1: have a Valentine's Day special. Bonanza. I was going to say it's bananas, which it is. It is bananas. It's a bananas bonanza.
0: (laughs) We have some of our favorite artist couples. That is, both sides are either musicians or filmmakers or actors in conversation about what it
1: means to be half of an artistic couple. It's a bananas bonanza. Pluses and minuses. Pluses and minuses snakes and ladders,
0: spiders and flies. Till next week, I'm your fly, Ellie Einhorn. And I'm Spider
1: here, Nick Dawson. Bye. (laughs) See you later.